News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn. Professor Christina Greer is away this week in Hartford, Connecticut, where she's recording Nikki Giovanni poems for a forthcoming gospel jazz album by saxophonist Javon Jackson that I can't play for you here yet, but sounds incredible. Speaking of music, Bill de Blasio is hyping a homecoming week of big star concerts coming in August on the one hand, while pressing city hospital workers and private employers to do more to push vaccinations on the other hand. As the vaccination rate here is stalled, even as the Delta variant is spreading, including among 31 kids at a sleepaway camp in the Hudson Valley. So, as the city holds its breath ahead of whatever new normal may be coming, Alex Lynn and I spoke this week with David Godless, the legendary photographer with the fantastic name, who captured the late-night punk scene at CBGB's in the 1970s. We are here to talk about his new book, Godless Streets, with his New York City daytime street photography from the same era. And joining us a few minutes into that conversation is the great writer, Luc Sant, who wrote the introduction to Godless Streets and is the author, most recently, of Maybe the People Would Be the Times, a collection of often autobiographical pieces covering his youth on the Lower East Side in the 70s and 80s. And with that, let's jump right in. Instituted a really awesome thing where he's like set up all my disparate hard drives and is transferring them to like a better, fancier server hard drive. So I don't have to be connected to it and I can connect to it even if I'm like somewhere else. Right. But, uh, but yeah, if I were just shut up alone in my apartment, I would have eons of work, just like editing things I never got to and doing all that. Yeah, yeah. And that, for me, it's half digital and half analog. So you do, you do shoot digital, too. Oh, yeah. I shoot digital, like, for the second half of my life. It's like, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, you could put a roadside, like, digital this way, analog that way. And my digital looks like analog. All right. But- we're saving it. We're saving Harry's, like, looking at me like, why aren't you saving this? This is, this is always what happens. My recording's on. Ahead. My recording's on on this end. <laughs> but uh, but so yeah, I have plenty of uh, negatives. Nice. And uh, also have plenty of digital files. So it's like, should I go to the back room and get the negative? Or should I go to the hard drive? It's something we should probably talk about once once we're officially recording. But uh, I'll mention because it's not relevant here uh, with your name. I, I I lived twenty years ago in West Beth in the sublet with a photographer, Will Gamble, whose wife was uh, May. And so when they got married, they were Will and May Gamble, which I always thought was the best photographer name right. set up possible. Well, it, you, you may have it be. It's always important to have a good photographer name. You, you want to have a good name. That's for sure. And I got lucky. You know, if you, if you it, 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 I kind of knew along the way, you know, that all my favorite photographers have good names. You know, Ouija, Brassai. Cartier Brisson's got the dash in the way in the in the name. These guys that um, did a film about me, an animated film about me, 
Oh, really? Short, I, I, I keep bringing a short animated film about me. These guys, Louis and Noah Kloster. And um, it was during COVID and we started it. And it was basically them recording audio of me that then they were going to animate me. And then we hit COVID and I said, you can't come by anymore. And they said they wanted to continue and get it done so that it could get into, uh, I didn't realize, but they wanted to get it into the New York Film Festival. And they did last year. But to come by, they said, well, we've got an idea. We'll drop off a mic. And then I had to be my own sound man here and set up their mic and record while, I, they, while they interviewed me over um, FaceTime and then give them back the, that, whatever the recorder was that they'd handed off to me. And so I became the sound man for my own film. Is this, is this the Shots in the Dark? Shots in the Dark, yeah. Awesome. I'm just it's really good. It. Yeah, really, I can't really, wait to watch they, it. They're, they're super good. They just did a, they just did one a follow-up documentary. They did one of um, Sarah Driver. And it was about her talking about getting Jim's movie to uh, to a film festival. When he was do when he was looking to get money to finish Stranger Than Paradise, ah, so like getting on or like uh, were they married at the time or together? Together, yeah, yeah, they were together. Yeah, she was like his producer. Yeah, and um, and so it's it's a it's an animated much like mine, just a little bit longer of her telling the story of getting it's called Stranger Than Rotterdam, getting the film to the Rotterdam Film Festival, <laughs> so that Jim could like get extra money to make the second third and third third of the movie because only one third was done and nice. it's, it's so and they just won an award at the Thessalonica film festival with it those guys so they're up and coming i like them louis and noah kloster watch out for them are they their brothers there's so many they brother are i know there's brother i wish i had a brother to work with you know like i mean i don't want a sibling but if i had a have one you know, they, they get to throw, you know, you get to bounce things off of somebody that's just like you. And so they're, they're definitely like, you know, younger and older brothers. Right. And, um, and, so, and they work very well together. And, uh, and they're, side. Side yeah, is, uh, is of course having someone just like you, which, which can be, a. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad I, you know, like I photographed so many bands and I'm glad I didn't, I, I'm glad that I, um, I'm not in a band because I hear all the decisions that they have to make together. So I only have to make my decision alone. Like when somebody wants to use my picture, I decide whether, you know, they can use it. But um, bands, I was talking with someone the other day and I'm going like, you mean you argue over set lists? Right. Making set lists? You ogre? Yeah. Yeah. Because they want this song first. They want that song first. You know. Well, film is the same thing. Like the endless, like the, the, there's the collaborative art forms and, and the, and the solitary ones. So like film, a lot of times, a lot of times, I mean, you, you can reach back to some experimental filmmakers that were kind of one man bands, but like in general, they're pretty collaborative and street photography or uh, docu in a lot of cases, documentary is very singular. Absolutely. That, that was the, a decision I made like long ago when I was like, I was into film, but I went, should I be filmmaker or should I be a photographer? And the decision was, I just felt like I work better alone. I'm not that good at, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm social, but I just, uh, I, I chose photography to rather than film for that reason. So when, when you were shooting at CBGB's, like, who did you enjoy listening to the most? Just, uh, uh just as an act. Which band? Mm-hmm. 
Hey, um, that's that that you know that's a tough one. I mean, because I enjoyed all the core bands and I enjoyed a lot of the other bands, but probably if I had to pick one, I would pick the Ramones. Mm. Just because they were so fun to listen to, you know, they were so fun to watch and so fun. They they just they were there was nothing like them. When I worked at Veselka in high school. Oh, I love. I would. Uh, I would serve. Like I was so excited because I'm like 16, and I would serve Joey Ramone a raspberry blintz every Sunday. They didn't really trust me to work anything except graveyard shift or to work brunch, where I had like a limited amount of tables, and there was like a million other servers to help me because I was a terrible waitress. But much like the Odessa and all those other places, they were cool with like angry, surly waiters and waitresses that got your right. wrong <laughs> they had no problem <laughs> joey joey was 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 you know he was kind of a i i went out he would go to to, to he liked the dojo mm. uh, and he i uh, went out there after a shoot i did with him in my apartment and um let's go to dojo and get the beef done he goes i like the beef done you know he had his so i what did you say he got it veselka Raspberry, uh, raspberry well it was a cheese blintz with raspberry sauce they would serve the raspberry sauce on the side that you could mm. pour over the cheese blintz which was a blintz with farmers like a sweet cheese in it he knew what he liked hey hey luke hey do you remember when dojo's walls were covered with what are now millions of dollars of painting <laughs> paintings by martin wong wow yeah Dojo is, yeah. was, 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 I guess he you like, know, gave some paintings for meals or something. Yeah. I, I, yeah, they, they, these are legendary spots, right? Mm. I, 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 the, the walls were a little darker in Dojo, right? The, the, they were brick. Yeah. Yeah. That whole I, block but, changed so much. I remember when there was the SRO building that people could get a room uh, or like a room with a shared bathroom for, you know, something like $300. And then, Years later, I checked what the rents were, and it was fifteen hundred. <laughs> you know, right. for these like tiny closet boxes Welcome on uh, Saint Mark's. Yeah, I started hanging out in that block in nineteen sixty eight, and I used to record like what's still left. And there was this the Royal Barber Shop, and <sighs> um, Bowling Board was there for a really long time. I used to go to Bowling Board a lot. Yeah, yeah. when and I was then- a kid, that was the first place I ever bought my like crystals. My like, for, like the, all the stones that they used to sell and rose yeah. quartz. I think that lady that owned Bowling Board, she must have been like a, a landlord around the neighborhood. Mm. And I, you know, she, once Bowling Board closed, she was still spending a lot of time on the block, going, you know, like like she ruled for some reason. She'd just be walking around, going like, "That's the Bowling Board lady. What she she's got a whole lot of other businesses going on here that I don't know about." Mm-hmm. And Kim's video, Kim's video was, I'm not sure when Kim's video opened, but when I was a teenager in the mid nineties, it was a pretty important part of the block at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was it where the same out, baths were. It started out as a corner of my local dry cleaners on Avenue A around, that was around 1990, something like that. And now, as I understand it, like all those DVDs are somewhere in Sicily. Yeah. Yeah. Warehouse in Sicily. Uh, Some artist enclave in like uh, in one of those dollar a house, dollar a castle Sicilian towns. Right. (laughs) 
I, I like to think that after, you know, our civilization has been completely wiped out, that is what is, you know, the archaeologists from some other planet will find Kim's video and that'll be everything they know about humans. <laughs> I hope it's still uh, organized extremely obscurely. Yes. So, pause. Uh, hello, all you FAQ listeners. This is Alex Brooklyn. We have a special episode today. We are chatting with David Godless, famed photographer, street photographer, punk photographer of uh, New York's late 70s and 80s. Um, not to mention currently, but we'll get to talking about that. And Luke Sant, scribe and chronicler of also of, of New York. So we have been chatting a little bit while we all get our technical ducks in a row. Um, also, Harry Siegel has been here leading the charge, and now Luke has just joined us. So we're going to keep going with the conversation and ask you guys some questions about Godless's new book, Godless Streets, for which Luke wrote the foreword. So with that, just to uh, get, us, get us rolling, it's 2021. There's all sorts of conversation about the uh, bad old days and the good old days. And, and David, I'd love to just hear a little about your street photography at this point, doing this, you know, pre-digital and, and capturing these shots in real time. And, and how much of this translates into the city you see now and how much of it is an artifact of a uh, lost New York at this point? Ah. Good well, questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're making me think. Um, well, you know, when I first picked up a camera, it wasn't long after that that I started to go into my uh, college library and pull photography books off the photography section shelf. And aside from looking at pictures of old stuff, I started to realize there was a thing, a street photography thing. I think I searched first probably saw it the most in Cartier-Bresson, Henri Cartier-Bresson, because that's pretty accessible how great those photographs are just by looking at them. And then you realize this is a person walking around taking pictures on the street. How does he get these without disturbing people? And so once I realized what street photography was and came upon other street photographers, I'm realizing that's the thing I want to try to do that, um, you know, Winogrand, Friedlander, Diane Arbus, Robert Frank especially, um, and then you work your way backwards. But I just, I, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. So I wanted to learn how to do that. How do you go out? And basically, you just go out. I wasn't, I hadn't gone to like a photography school yet. I was still getting my like English literature degree at Boston University. And um, I took a quick course on how to develop film. But once I, this is a very long answer, but um once I went out and tried it, I realized from reading what people said about it, like you just have to go out and do it. And how do you go out and sort of, first, how do you get somebody's picture without asking them? Second, how do you get somebody's picture without asking them and make it look like they don't know you're taking it? Because I wanted that kind of street picture, not the kind that you're, it looks like you, that they saw you. And I just started trying to do it and kind of learn by trial and then I guess a bit of it is just what kind of person you are and um, I, I realized like 
I had to act a little bit. You know, I had to sort of act a certain way with the camera so that they didn't notice me. And so all those skills you sort of come upon, I came upon one by one. And I guess I wanted to do it anyway. I sort of wanted to know how do you walk in the street and do things and get away with them, I guess, you know, like instead of just being a guy that's sitting at the table watching people go by, how do you get in that mix and get come back with something? And, um, and uh, so for me, that was what street photography was. It just was like, you know, a way of life, I guess, in a way. It became, I realized you have to tag your camera every day. You can't go like, am I photographing today or tomorrow? It's like all the time you have to have a camera over your shoulder. So you go like, all right, I'll make sure I have my camera with me everywhere I go. Because if you don't take it, you're definitely going to run into something. And, um, and I guess I learned a way of life that became very comfortable the more I did it. And um, then when I met more people that did it at that school I went to in East Cambridge, Massachusetts called Imageworks, I learned, oh, you can go out with other people that do it. And we all go to the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And then we all come back and develop film. And then we all compare what we got. And, um, and so that there was a kind of a community at that point and that I could learn with. And then you go off into your own, you know, you get, you, 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 and I moved to New York and I said, okay, I'm by myself here. Let's see what we can do. So when you moved to New York, right, mid seventies um, with that, with that Pentax camera that you had mentioned. By the um, way, yeah, yeah. I, I had a Pentax when I shot before I moved to New York. And by the time I moved to New York, I was onto the Leica. Ah, um, so New York is more like uh, is more like Leica, <laughs> yeah, Leica, Leica period. <laughs> I like to joke that it's it's kind of like a Rolling Stone. Nice. Um, what I what I love about this book is sort of the the many the myriad of different worlds you manage to capture because this isn't the punk documenting that you've done. This is very slice of life. It's very kind of it feels what. I would imagine it actually felt like to be in New York, to be able to navigate all the different kinds of New York that there was during this era. And in the foreword, Luke, you say, which it really caught my eye, um, you had written, you will remember, too, the generalized small-time crumminess of so much of that decade. And it may feel alluring now, if only in comparison with the hostile corporate facade that succeeded it. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit because it, it's it kind of encapsulated perfectly for me as I then read uh, read through the book and looked at at all these beautiful pictures, what I was seeing and informed you know what I was seeing um, from a different perspective. I was born in 1981, so what can you like expand on that, especially in reference to these pictures? What you meant by that transition from small time crumminess to uh, um, to like corporate facade in New so, York. Well, I mean, um, there was a lot of kind of improvised commerce and that included brick and mortar storefronts. I mean, you know, you figured that sometimes these had been businesses that had been there for 50 or 60 or 70 years and they possibly had glory days, but they were not within living memory. Um, but also, you know, people opened stores and what were they selling? They were selling dust, you know. Um, yeah, you wondered if anybody crossed the threshold of some of these places. 
And um, there was something, you know, at the same, I remember the feeling of kind of comfort and slight disgust at the same time, just walking around the streets. But there were surprises, you know, you could, holy cow, who knew that there was this African import store on 58th Street where you could buy African records, which you couldn't do anywhere else in New York. And, you know, by and large, um, all this stuff started disappearing in the 80s when corporate land, I mean, large scale landlords, large scale apart building flipping and all that came in. And, um, and as we've seen in the last few decades, I mean, the mode is really don't just buy a building and rent it out to a telephone store or that kind of business, but rather tear down a whole bunch of buildings and build a high rise that has little or no street frontage of any interest to the pedestrian. You know, it's it's night and day. I mean, it's really um, the, the New York of the 70s and early 80s was like, um, I, I want to say like an old European city in a lot of ways, uh, but without the guilt, you know, um, the <laughs> GILT. It was entrenched, it was slow moving, and uh, people had their minor occupations that would keep them alive. I mean, presumably you could make a living and feed yourself and house yourself selling shoelaces. Um, this quickly turned out not to be the case by the late 80s, early 90s even. Harry, this is uh, what, how many years after the fiscal crisis when uh, New York City's like denied the ability to borrow money? It's like 76 or something like that, 75, 76, 77 in, the, in that region. I don't remember 75. when Florida City dropped dead, dropped actually. Dead. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of guilt, uh, Trump, of course, starts becoming a player in Manhattan in the seventies and then, then the eighties. And he liked to talk about, uh, about glitz in his buildings mm -hmm. in the top tier ones, but we seem to have reached potentially, I think some sort of luxury city peak that maybe that's crested. Maybe the virus is changing some of this going forward. Uh, it's appealing to me in certain ways to see Hudson Yards, which is this huge luxury, uh, with scare quotes, development you know on basically what had been a rail yards and one of the last undeveloped sites in manhattan it's a ghost town now uh neiman marcus is there it's dead uh nobody is living there uh there, there's a, a a piece of architecture that that, that inevitably became a suicide destination mm -hmm. and i'm wondering if, if, if maybe there's a chance of getting on the other end i've written a bit about this like a uh a smaller, more scalable city back uh, in which there's sort of more space for the people who, who live here to get by and that we maybe become less of a destination for global capital to, you know, sort of, sort of live in buildings where no one actually does in these ultra talls and all that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling with the pandemic, forgive me, but like weirdly hopeful that maybe we're turning a corner here back to something more like the city I recognize from, from my youth and like the, the late 80s and the early 90s, which is a little later than, than, than the photos we're talking about here. But, uh, you know, looking at them, I, I, there's a city I remember there that I'm hoping there might be a little more space for, and especially if, if, if Midtown isn't what it was and people aren't going back to offices five days a week and we have to figure out something else to do with that, those spaces. 
And then maybe the retail mix changes. Uh, you know, you don't have storefronts that are basically just corporate billboards paying mm -hmm. 35000 a month to make it worth it to keep a place vacant for, you know, 10 years to get the right tenant. That, that's yeah. a one way of asking, of getting back to the book. And, and like the, the, this, this question in both your experience, like were, were those good old days or bad old days as the cliche goes? And like what parts of that do you recognize now? What parts do you hope we might recognize going forward? Um, I mean, that's a very hopeful view of the possibilities. I mean, it would, it would really depend on people being willing to um, make the trade-off, to accept less money, to uh, no longer hold out for more money because we know, you know, all these ghost apartments, empty storefronts, just waiting for clients, not willing to accept less. Well, they'll have to accept less, and that might be a hard thing. On the other hand, I remember like when I learned that as the condominiums were starting to become a thing and co-op buildings and so on in the 80s, realizing that the same thing had happened in the 20s and was just killed by the depression. And afterwards, it was the city of renters. Um, and I didn't even know that there had been sales of apartments in the 1920s. Um, so that's, you know, that's a ridged across there for these investors who may have to settle for less. I sure hope it does. I mean, uh, to me, they, you know, the 70s, 60s, 70s, early 80s are, they were the good old days because it was cheap. Because it was cheap and also, and this made this a lot harder thing to bring back, which is um, the fact that you felt connected to all the previous eras of New York history. You know, it was there. The, uh, you know, this is one thing you don't see in New York. And you do see, not just in foreign cities, but you see in other cities in the United States, this restaurant has been here since 1916. There's not a lot of that in New York. I remember when the oldest restaurants in New York, which were both near uh, Fulton Fish Market, uh, closed down in like in late 80s, early 90s, maybe, after being in business since like the mid-19th century. There was a lot of that, you know. Um, but if at least, you know, the people who own these buildings are willing to scale back their ambitions financially and accept, you know, tenants who uh, are maybe adventurous but do not have that kind of money, uh, then we may be getting somewhere. But it'll take some detoxing. You know, financial detox. I think the the Paris down at the Fulton Fish Market just closed over the pandemic. And that was a great bar uh, when I was making the documentary about the closing of the Fulton Fish Market. Everyone would go there and drink at like 8 a.m., 9 a.m. when they got off when they got mm -hmm. off work. And um, uh, the guy Harry and I used to work for, Fip Avalon was uh, I was able to interview him in that documentary saying, you know, the whole idea of New York is not the city that doesn't sleep because everyone's out clubbing, but it's a city that doesn't sleep because everyone's out working 24 hours a day in these like jobs where you could support yourself. So this sort of brings me back to the photographs. What I loved really, I mean, there's so many photos I love, but uh, it seems germane to this part of the conversation that I bring up like the men in suits. So there's so many guys down in the financial district. There's the book opens, right? And you have this one guy, skinny, like hunched, but very much in like a suit trying to be a quaffed 
you know, businessman and he's crossing the street. There's another guy kind of sprawled as it's called now man spreading, uh, sitting on a building and he looks almost childish. Um, there's a, there's, there's a bunch of businessmen, you know, in this book that are photographed really, really well. And I like that because in these photographs, and I wanted to ask you, David, about this, in these photographs, they look like children, like they're funny, like they're, they're a parody of what they want to be, you know, but, uh, in depictions like Mad Men, where you got early 2000s, everyone's lusting over this like very masculine machismo, like super tight collar, like coiffed hair kind of look. And you can even see that echo in some of our politicians, especially Cuomo, Scaramucci, like that, you know, what 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 Daniel Trump kind of wanted to be, but like could never really get his look together to, to do. But um, you have that aspiration that still holds over from that old school kind of New York machismo. But the way you had photographed it, these are like children playing dress up. And again, it, it, it comes to the foreword that, that Luke wrote about this being a book uh, capturing people, New Yorkers wearing like the costumes of their own narratives. Um, I'm obviously paraphrasing and butchering, but could you talk a little bit about what it was like to like, approach the 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 business district um for street photography yeah you know the 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 real era for that aside from the 40s and 50s was the 60s and i kind of was a teenager in the 60s so i knew i wasn't really going to be one of those businessmen i just knew I, I didn't have the capability of it plus my father was a musician so i knew there was opportunities to do sort of other things and so I think that's kind of reflected in how I photographed those people. I was almost like fascinated by them doing this thing I never thought myself capable of doing, nor did I want to do it. And I grew up also with those kind of movies like The Graduate, where, you know, Mike Nichols was already kind of playing around with, you know, who are these people? Are they really the important people in the world or are the creative people the important people in the world? And I'm... So there's a, I think when I go out, when I was going out shooting, as, as Luke was saying, you know, the city had so many different eras in terms of like its architecture and storefronts, but also in terms of people, you're looking at people from other eras. I, I would look at people and I'd go like, I don't even know what these women are, but you know, the longer I look at the picture that I took of those women, I'd go like, oh, they're still wearing the same hairdo they had like 30 years ago and walking around in their head like it's 30 years ago. And so are some of the businessmen that I photographed in the 70s were still walking around like it was the 60s in their head. And I, I think that that I just, you know, you don't really know what material you're using. You're going to find when you go out in the street, you just go out and you look for stuff that's uh, that might interest you while you're out there. And um and I think that when I look at those pictures of those businessmen, that's what was interesting to me. This, I, I was like, I don't know how they do this. Um, maybe I'll get a picture. And, 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 and it played into like the picture I was creating. I already looked at the pictures that Winogrand had shot of those businessmen. He you know, spent a lot of time going back and forth, I guess, to corporate offices and shooting in between jobs. And, um, and so I, I just kind of, you know, that that's, I was, I was in a way fascinated by the businessmen, fascinated by the way photographers before me had photographed those businessmen, Robert Frank, uh, especially Winogrand, I think. And just for my own interest, I was photographing, again, a, a city that 
and you know you're trying to figure what is this city you know is it is it what year am i living in and when you're living in that year you don't know you know you know books and magazines that tell you what last year was like and what 10 years ago was like but you're left to your own devices of as far as what today's like and i was going out going like i you know i think in a way with photography you're going because there's a time machine element to it i remember thinking i'm photographing today to show i, I want the photograph to still be interesting 20 years from now you know and and I'm, i have the opportunity to photograph today sometimes i go like i'd run into somebody and i i'd, I'd run to a pic a, a thing and i'd go wow this looks like the 1940s i'll take some pictures but in the end it is whatever year you whatever day you took it and then that becomes the time stamp on the picture and and everything in it is the conglomeration of stuff that's around you when you're photographing that day so speaking of uh streetscapes and eras and also about not knowing beforehand what you're shooting you have some great juxtaposition shots in different registers and there's almost an implicit series inside the book with uh sex shops around times square and then some of the characters including a little girl a nun actually walking by a uh, a bus with a very sexy ad the guy with, with, with the, the the guy with the crutches leaning up against the thing that says um kitty rides oh. was Oh, dark oh, but, that, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's Coney Island I, I believe um, that's, that one was actually Massachusetts before I uh, moved to New York in, in the Coney Island of Massachusetts like so I, you smuggled that into the New York book is a great well, I, I, it was yeah I smuggled some of the Boston stuff in I couldn't smuggle anything else in I, I and a New them. Jersey a New Jersey one-eyed councilman oh, yeah that guy and, and also so the fact that the um the wise guys and Southie in Boston just merge seamlessly into these New York businessmen we're talking about. Sometimes you can't tell which side of the fence they're on. In, in their trichoperms. The, right. the word was Luke, yes. wrote, Luke wrote trichoperms into the intro and I had to go Google it to find out what it was. What, wait, what is a trichoperm? It's some kind of hair sculpting technology that was in vogue in the 70s i couldn't really explain it to you except that when my friends and i were walking around we'd say look at that guy's trichoperm you know and i got used to oh yeah i, I could recognize it immediately probably haven't seen one since about 1985 but they were there and they're there in your pictures david yeah. would, would you wait at some of these locations for those juxtapositions no. to present themselves or no, I learned very soon, very quickly that that you, if you wait, you won't get anything. Not anything interesting, or I won't get anything interesting. You know, I'd look at Cartier Brisson pictures and I'd go, "Oh, he finds a good spot, and then he waits for this to come through." And I'd go, "Like, I'm not good at that." I'd try that, and I'd go, "Like that." You know, I'm just standing here waiting when there's good pictures two blocks away. Get moving. I'm. I most of it's like me on the run and me on the move. There's nothing really there that I'm waiting for. I don't think. It's just trying to pretend that, you know, it's trying to do a thing that pretends that I'm not in that, I'm, not, that I'm, I'm invisible. 
So a lot of street photographers will move like they'll keep trying to move and get the shot. I got a couple friends. Harry and I have a couple very close friends, one that has run pictures on FAQ before uh, Daniel McKnight, our friend Stephen Yang. They, they're news photographers, so they shoot for the tabloids and um, they're always in motion or they'll just sit and wait for the shot, like wait for the perp walk, what have you. And you I get and I know a bunch of photographers who do that. They'll just sit in one spot and kind of like see so because there are so many different kinds of new york and different kinds of people represented in the book you've got Times square you've got this place that place like were you constantly just traveling about or did you just happen to be in certain places at certain times did you have like shooting days that you would go out and just say i'm going to go to that neighborhood today or would it just happen to be where you were it's it's a combination of all of those you know like it's not always one thing that i do all the time like some days I'd walk out and just go like, I'm going to walk down Fifth Avenue and get like a, a, a pic, some, some, something of people walking up and down Fifth Avenue. And they'd go like, if I'm walking against the sun, I'm going to get backlit photos. So let's try a few blocks that way, because that kind of looks interesting lighting. And maybe I'll run into something interesting to put into that interesting lighting. And sometimes I'd go the other direction. And then some quite often, I'm just going from one place to the other, carrying my camera. There, 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 there's a like, it's not in this book. There's a picture I have of Debbie, Harry and Chris Stein. And there's, they're walking up Sixth Avenue. And it's kind of one of my street pictures of a punk person. I think I told this story at, at one of the talks we did, Luke. And it's, it's me having lunch on Sixth Avenue at my lunch hour when I worked in a, as an assistant to a photographer off 46th Street, and I'd go up at 6th Avenue, and I'd bring a sandwich, and I'd just sit and eat. And while I was sitting and eating, Chris and Debbie came walking up the street. And I jumped out and just took one, two shots of them. They walked on. I went back to my sandwich. But I realized, Chris, at that moment that I told that story, he went, oh, that's how you got that picture, because he couldn't remember me doing a photo session with him. And I didn't realize they lived right nearby, and they were basically walking home they weren't famous enough for anybody to stop Debbie in the middle of the road on 6th Avenue, except me, who was having my lunch. So a lot of my pictures, that's to say, are me just engaging in my regular activities, but remembering to bring a camera. And while I was like on us, you know, my boss sent me out to go get a cup of coffee for him or go get something done. I'd hit, you know, there's that lady that's in front of the Rocky uh the promo photo of Sylvester Stallone and Rocky. And that's how I got, that's me going on lunch hour, you know, like just taking a picture while before I go back and work the drudge work of working in the studio. And so it's a combination. Some days I'm out, you know, looking for a picture just because I, you know, it's kind of like taking a walk in New York settles your mind, taking a walk with a camera in hand settles your mind in a whole other way for me. And so sometimes I'm just, it's therapy. I'm going out with a camera and I'll take some pictures. What if, so what if I don't get any good ones today? I'll feel better at the end of the day. Kind of like the photographic version of lunch poems. So <laughs> you guys, um, how do you, uh, David and Luke, did you know each other back in the day? Or when did you meet? Did you know of each other? How did you end up becoming colleagues or friends or being aware of each other's work? Well, I, I certainly knew David's work from way back um, from the CBGP pictures. And I, 
I don't know when we first spoke. I mean, I could I could certainly pick you out in the crowd. I, I you know not only not just the cameras. You know, there was your hair um, and and that name, which I kind of thought might be a pseudonym at first. Godless, you know, wow. And um, so I I don't know. Maybe did we? Well, what, I mean, we definitely met when you started at some point. You were covering Lincoln Center and um, yeah. the film festival, and uh, I was there on several semi-official whatevers, and and I that may be the first time we officially met. That that I, th I think you're right on that. I I always admired your work. I was like you know a reader of your work, and um, I don't think we met through Jim. Though we might have on occasion, but I I don't think so. I just think I knew your work, and I know that I was kind of. Um, in the CBGB days, I really wanted to be invisible. I wanted to be the fly on the wall. And I didn't want to be like a photographer named Godless who stood out. I just, mm. you know, that, that was kind of what I wanted to be in my mind when I published these pictures. But when I was taking them, I was very much trying to uh, be anonymous. And, and, and I, and, you know, so I knew a few people and yeah, I was, I would talk, but, um, but I, I very much knew who Luke was and his writing. And, um, and it, you know, I, it was a dream come true when he said he'd write the intro for this book. Because I, I just thought, oh, he's the perfect person, but I don't have the guts to ask him. You know, it was that kind of thing. And, um, but of course, I think, you know, where we, we, we definitely met, you were pulled in when, when CBGB's was closing down to analyze... Mm the bar or the wood or tell them like somehow how, what was going on with that yeah, club to keep it preserved. Jarmish and I were filmed in the ruins of the club by Hilly's daughter, I believe, no, or Seymour Stein's daughter who made a movie, which I never saw. Um, and that was fascinating because uh, seeing that horse race mural from the 1870s and then the mural of the bar patrons from the early 1970s when it was hillies and it was hippie bums. Um, that was all fascinating, you know, and, and then there was still graffito, there were still band flyers, some of which were preserved and actually enhanced by John Varvatos. But yeah, so you were there that day? Yeah, I was in that film too, uh, that never came right. out. And, and, I'd like and, to see that sometime. Yeah, it's it's around somewhere, but it, it I think they didn't get the music rights for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. With her father being Seymour Stein, I don't know how that happened. Yeah, but but also you know I was interested in a lot of the things Luke wrote about, and you know when I look at your short essays in 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 your new book, I just am like fascinated by just even like you know random photos you write about, just ways of looking at photography, plus you know, pieces you wrote about legendary photographers or whatever, you know, it's just like, if I wanted to be a writer, I would want to be him. If I want, you know, like, but I, I and I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't a good, I, I wasn't a bad writer, but I didn't, it, it, I realized photography was something I did better than writing. But Luke's writing is exactly what I would want to do if I was writing. And, and, you know, I'll flip that back to you because I wanted to be a photographer when I was in high school. And I, I made forays into the streets of New York City in 1971 and took pictures of which I have, still have a few. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, I really admire Evans and, and Frank, but, you know, 
I'll never transcend that influence. I'll just be an imitator. So I should stop now. And I did. But I want that's, that's kind of that, that's kind of what I did with writing <laughs> the same exact thing. And I had people around me that were writing. I went, man, they're so good. And they do it with such what seemingly effortlessly. And then when I started to take pictures, I got a camera and took pictures of those same people. Um, I went, oh, I seem to do this effortlessly. Yeah, it's pretty intimidating when your closest friends are really, really good writers. So right. I, this is a good occasion, actually. I'd like to just shout out a couple of earlier episodes of the podcast that I, I think are really germane here. First, uh, McDoodle Street, which was with uh, Mark Allen Stamity, uh, the great cartoonist, who that whole interview really revolved around uh, how, how do you think of this stuff? Where does it come from? And he says, it's, it's, I, I just walk around the city and I don't think too much and everything flows out uh, from there. And also I'd be remiss, especially uh, uh, with having Luke here, not to shout out Charles Farrell, the great jazz pianist turned boxing fixer, whose new memoir is called, uh, I'd, Failed to ask if it was in tribute, low life, with uh, parentheses around the low, uh, which is just an absolutely fascinating book about a uh, about a peripatetic man who is very gifted in wildly different arenas. It turns out, including writing, which which just seems unfair to the rest of us, uh, leave something. Uh, which is also a really interesting conversation and, and uh, centers around this question of how. The talents that maintained him as a uh, jazz pianist in his 20s translated into managing boxers and fixing boxing matches and uh, dealing with mobsters, which, which is a subject I'll confess I'd never given a minute's thought to prior to that, but it was a, a lot of fun to hear about. Luke and David, th thank you both so much for taking all this time. I really appreciate it. I also need to shout out uh, True Love Always in Windsor Terrace, uh, which is where I stumbled across the book. Uh, I, I knew actually your, your your punk photography, but not this at all. Uh, and it, it was recommended that I buy it. Uh, I was provided with your phone number. You said, you guys should talk. And uh, here we are. Uh, it's a great shop. It's in Windsor Terrace. Uh, there's various sorts of uh, cool bric-a-brac. Uh, there's some good records. There's beautiful uh, New York books, uh, True Love Always. And with that programming note, I know Alex had, uh, if we can have a few more minutes of your time, uh, some, some photography nerd questions, as she put it, that she, she was open to ask. Well, uh, before even you got on the call, Harry, we chatted a little bit about uh, I'm starting to play with a four by five, and it's really hard, and I don't think I'll ever be good at it, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. So what do you think, what's your shooting camera what's your technical camera and then what's your fun camera what's the camera you just love to shoot on they're actually all the same <laughs> <laughs> i use a, right now i uh, when i switched from analog to digital i had to find something that was as comfortable as the leica i was using for decades and it, i couldn't find a thing that existed leica's first digital cameras were not comfortable and they, they, they lent me one and I went, this doesn't work either. And I, so I had to dig through various digital cameras. I ended up, it took many years, but now I settled on Fuji just because they seem to, um, their algorithm for their sensor seems to mimic analog photography. 
for me. I hear that a lot. I a lot of my what. friends love Fuji, love the Fujis because yeah. then they have that rangefinder feel. Yes, I, I, I use a Fuji now, an XE3. They have an XE4, and it does feel like my Leica. And, 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 and so I can adapt it with their lenses to shoot the New York Film Festival when I have to shoot on the red carpet. And I use the same camera with just a wide angle lens when I'm walking around every day. And, uh, and it, it shoots great black and white if you want to. You, and and, and it, it, it just, it, it's, the controls are all in the right place. So that's my camera, the Fuji camera. I, you know, they make various iterations. They make like an XE. XE uh, there's one that mimics a SLR, one that mimics an, a rangefinder. They're all got the same insides. And, um, and because they were a film company, I think their algorithm for their sensor matches they they know about film and so each sensor mimics a different type of fuji film speaking of film a lot of the new york street photographers right now martin cartega uh, daniel arnold it seems that people are moving back to film you've got a bunch of film labs opening up again uh, bushwick darkroom collective i'm maybe butchering that name, Luster. You've got a, a bunch of people that are waiting online to get their film developed again, which was not the case in the early 2000s, which wasn't the case from like 2000, 2015. Now, all of a sudden, people are going back to film. Um, I'm I'm one of them I'm uh, that I just, you know, I remembered what it was like to shoot in high school and I wanted to go out and and shoot like that again. And in the in-between, I had worked with Canons and I had worked with mostly digital until I was like, in my thirties again. Um, what do you think about that kind of trend moving back to film? Do you like it? Do you think it's gimmicky? Do you think it'll last? No, I mean, film, it, it, you know, it's a great medium. And I, and I, you know, only reason I switched away from it was because people I worked with, first of all, it cost more money. Right. And I, at the time I, I, it was easier for me to do street photography and not have to, I went, wow, I don't have to pay for film, but of course, then you have to pay for hard drives. And um, it just, you know, film is different. That's the, you know, it just create, the image is created differently. I look for a digital camera now that create, that I want the way it was created in film and I want it to mimic that so I don't, so I can do that without using film. But I've used film for so long and you don't stop using film. You know, like when I'm doing this book of street photos and when I'm doing my next book, the one I'm working on next, which is Miami in 1974, I'm pulling out film. I'm, you know, the film that has lasted 40, 50 years sitting in on a shelf is just fine. And I, and I love the, te you know, being able to like hold it and look at it and, you know, have something in my hands. And so I put up with digital w while imagining I'm shooting film. Do either of you, uh, Luke, David, have a particular contemporary, I would say New York chronicler, whether they're a writer or another photographer or even a documentarian that you really like that's recording that present right now that you had described the feeling of recording back in, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s? I would say Jeremiah Moss. Um, who wrote Vanishing New York and posts under that moniker on Instagram. And the 
the chronicle he made of Washington Square Park in the last year in its full glory is it was an amazing thing to see unfold day by day, especially for us exiles up here in the north. It was it was exhilarating actually, and um, just a fine eye and a real sense of detail, sense of people, yeah, and a good writer as well. Yeah, I I, I like I like him too. Uh, for me, the 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 guy who's doing the best street photography. And I'd say better than I'm doing uh, is is Clay Benskin. Hmm. He's very humble. He's on Instagram, and sometimes he goes off Instagram. So you got to keep track of him, Clay Benskin, and um, and he does you know flat out amazing stuff on the street that I look at. You know, like I I want people to look at my photographs and go, how did he get that? I look at his photographs and I go, how did he get that? And um, Chris Stein had told me about him, and so I started following him. And I'm like, oh my. God, this guy's amazing. And then I was out in Coney Island a few years ago. It was, I think it was the Day of the Mermaid Parade, and I was wandering around on the fringes of Coney Island, like near the hot dog, near Nathan's, and somebody went godless. And I looked up, and it was a guy who had been taking pictures of me that I had no idea he was taking pictures of me because he does it in a certain way. And, and he went, Clay Benskin. And I went, that's how you do it. You know, like he fooled me until I saw him in person and saw how he got all the great pictures I've been looking at. And he, 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 you got to follow him. And then he, he does this thing where he gets a zillion followers and then decides to stop doing it and closes his account and starts with zero again under the same name and works his way back up and then closes his account. And starts at zero again, but his pictures are just as good each time. So you got to look them up. I like to call those people clout teasers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you guys so much for um, for coming to talk about this book. Uh, Harry, did you have anything to add? I think I've got a closing question with a brief anecdote attached. I went to Coney Island with my wife and my daughters. There was a uh, kids ride fun, enjoy, hand-painted sign, and a guy with real mean face tattoos, teardrops uh, to represent the uh, departed, his departed, and so on right there. And it was a very striking juxtaposition. So I took out my phone, like I was looking at email, tried to get a couple shots of him. My family's walking on while I'm doing this. I'm walking behind them. I hear, yo, yo, yo. Just keep walking. Eventually, the guy catches up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, were you taking pictures of me? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> we, go, we go around and around for a minute. It becomes fairly clear that, that uh, um, you know, uh, th this is going to become uh, uh, physical um, if I do not put in my <laughs> password and show him the phone. I consider this. I'm with my family. I'm like, ah, life is too short, and I'm a shitty photographer, so I probably just have, like, a blurry nothing of this anyways but it was you could see it it was just beautifully composed the whole thing um and i deleted the photo so i have two questions about that the first is did i do the right thing there or should i have uh, should i have fought for my maybe good photo and much more seriously uh how, how has this worked uh really for for 
both of you in your works, but but especially for you, David, like, have you been at some points confronted? Are there photos that you've chosen not to take or had to do something about afterward? When you're, you know, sort of capturing other people's lives, how have you navigated that and how intense at different points has that been? Wow. Yes, I've had one particular incident like the incident you're talking about. And um, it was 19, it was around 1976 when I first moved down to New York and I was walking around the Flatiron District knocking on photographers' studios asking if they needed somebody to help them develop film, looking for an assistant job. And so in between, I was taking pictures. And um, I took one of a guy sitting out in front of a building near the Flatiron and it was like half-hearted. I was about to go have lunch. I said, I'll take one more picture. This guy looks interesting. I took his picture. He got up, came walking towards me. And the first thing he did was punch me in the face. Like just bam. And I, you know, it was a side of the face. And I, I kind of spun around. And I remember people, it was like New York City. And people were just walking by going like, something just happened over there, but I got to get somewhere, you know. And um, the guy came up went back to his spot he had been sitting and then I kind of got myself back up and and he came back and he said and I, this time I was ready I was like I'm gonna stand back I, he's you know I stood back and he and he went you took my picture and you didn't ask my permission you, you didn't you, you you took my picture without asking me and I want the film and I had the standard answer which was like you're not getting the film you know like I knew that and, and I knew then now to steer clear of him a little bit. But he said, he said, well, I'm going to call the police. And I was like, OK, call the police, because that sounds good to me, because I I kind of want to know now that I'm doing this in New York instead of Boston, whether I'd heard that, you know, people were in public domain on the street and you could photograph them. So I thought I could get, you know, he could call the police and I could find out from the police if I could do this. And then he went back up to work and the police I don't know how it, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I was sitting in the back of a police car and they were like, I said, this guy just came up and sort of punched me. But, and they were, well, do you want to, do you want us to take him in for assault? And I was like, no, I kind of want to know if I can do this. You know, can I in public domain? And they said, yeah, yeah, of course you can. He assaulted you. And he had given me where he worked upstairs from where he was sitting. And they said, do you want us to go do something? I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, we could scare him. And I said, okay. And then I went with them up to the office and it was the United Synagogue Company or something. They were, you know, he was packing synagogue books in the back of them. And we went to the front and the lady at the front was like, they, they went, we want to talk to Jose because that was what his name was. And, um, and they were like, what, what do you want? They saw me with two cops, you know, the, 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 the Jew with the curly hair and two cops. What, what's going on here? And, um, and we went in the back. They said, they said, just take us to Jose. We go to Jose and we go in the back and Jose comes running out and he goes, that guy took my picture without asking me. So I punched him. And the cops <laughs> are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then he goes, that guy punched him. He didn't ask me. And they like are trying to explain to Jose that he can't do that, that it's assault. And this you know, young man is um, willing to not press charges, but you're going to have to apologize to him. And that was basically the sort of end of that situation. Wait, and, did he uh, apologize, though? Yeah, he had to apologize. And they said he doesn't have to give you the film. And I found out from the cops that I can take pictures. And um, and so what you did wrong in your situation is 
you, you got to be ready to pretend you you got to be ready to believably pretend you didn't take the picture if that's your answer <laughs> or you've got to be ready you got to be ready with your answer yeah. either you took the picture you can't have it or you took i didn't take the picture and then you got to be a really good actor i'm not good at that you know they can read my face in half a second so i'm more of the you know you're not getting it don't worry i'm not the kind of guy that's going to do something with it and you know but you know don't punch me <laughs> was the shot any good that you took no it wasn't any good but it's only good because it illustrates the story i'm telling you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a great shot because if you can build a story around a rather, you know, boring shot of a guy sitting on a, a one of those pipes that stick out from the side of the building, I don't know what they're called. And, but you can see in the picture that he has really big hands. Like you can see those fingers that hit me. You look at it and you go like, yeah, he had big, I, I took a punch. But never again, I, you know, like, and, and I prefer to be the guy that, you know, like, why should I alarm somebody that I took their picture, right? Because first of all, if I take 100 pictures in a day, what are the odds it's going to be a good one? Very minimal. So I can't take care of every single person I take a picture of. So better off that they don't know. It's they, They're not hurt. They're not worried. I'm not worried. And I'm that guy. I kind of can walk through. If, you, if I take a, here's the trick. If you take somebody's picture, well, when, if you're using a camera, not a phone, if you're taking somebody's picture and you're using a camera, it's up in front of your face. You do the shot. And when you take the camera away, you look over there. If you look at them to see if you got the picture, you're busted. And I learned that pretty quickly. So you, you have to go, oh, what's my part? I take a pic. I, I take the picture I want and then I don't look at it. And in okay. the days when you're analog, you don't go walking away looking at the LCD. You wait another 24 hours before you're in the darkroom to see it. I think there's a few photos in the book where especially some of these women dressed in their their old outfits um, that like you can see a glance like wait, maybe there's they're just their eyes have floated up to you in that one second. And they're thinking, is he taking a picture of me? You're allowed to have that in the picture, you know, as long as it's not a dead on stare like Robert Frank talks about the one picture in San Francisco that they dead on busted him on those couple, the black couple sitting on the hillside. And, um, and, you know, in my mind, I don't really, I don't want that type of picture. So I don't allow that sort of to happen. But the other thing to remember back in the analog days is film costs money. And people are like, why would he waste money taking a picture of, you know, it's costs him money to take pictures. Why would he waste his money taking a picture of somebody he doesn't know? Like that, that's, that's the thing that gets you by because people think you don't know them. And, and when I, when you do that trick, I said, where you look, I go, I take the picture and then I look behind them. They turn around to see what I took a picture of behind them. You know, Thank that's you. A great, sorry. That's a, that's a great closing note. Um, I, oh, if you say this, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll edit. <laughs> That's, I think we should leave it in. Adam, leave both of our closing note speeches in. Um, that is a great closing note. But thank you guys so much for coming. Let's do some plugs. Uh, Godless Streets. It's out right now. You can get it at various bookstores. G-O-D-L-I-S. Godless. G-O-D-L-I-S. And then a book to look out for in the coming years or year or two would be Godless and his uh, Miami photos. And of course, Luke Sant, who, who's 
most recent uh, collection of essays is Maybe the People Would Be the Times, which is hypnotic reading. Um, of course, Low Life, which we've mentioned, and, and uh, a, a, a great deal more. Uh, but these are two what, chroniclers what's the you new, cannot go wrong with. What's the book that's coming out next year? I'm going to have a book out next year called 19 Reservoirs, which is about the um, reservoirs that feed New York City. Ah, Shout out to another time. FAQ episode, Harry. Oh, yes. Uh, another FAQ shout out. NYC's Water Miracle with Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen, uh, actually talking about the uh, the whole water system that, that feeds New York. Um, I, I hope, Luke, when your book is out, that, that we can have you back on to uh, talk about that, please. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Awesome. All right. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Collective of independent journalists and artists. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, Greenwich Village in the East Village, and Kingston, New York. A special thank you to our guests, David Godless and Luke Sant, and to Damien of True Love Always. Alex Brooklyn is our executive producer, and Adam Kamara mixed and mastered this week's episode. Thanks for listening to it. Be safe, be kind, be cool, and we'll be back next week.